Hey everyone, welcome to episode 44 of the True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So this episode's going to be released the night of Super Bowl Sunday, so we hope that you guys enjoyed the game. And if you hate the Patriots, we hope they lost. But if you like them, hope things went your way, guys. John is a little upset. He's still traumatized by his Saints loss. Yes, it's traumatizing. The uh, flagrant no call. Yeah. Uh, was, that's helmet to helmet contact, buddy. But it, hey. it was a sad day. It was a sad day in it's the true crime couple household. Yes, absolutely. And he's still mourning. And it's, I think I, th- <laughs> I I've cried a lot. He's basically boycotting the Super Bowl. That's what I think. Yeah, is I'm happening. not even watching it this year. I don't think <laughs> I've gotten robbed. All right. So today you'll get over it. You'll be okay. Maybe it'll be one of the episodes. Maybe today we have a very interesting case for you. I don't want to go ahead and say that this case is unsolved because many involved in the investigation believe that the killer was found. He was just never brought to justice. In this episode, we are going to cover the murder of the Robison family in Goodhart, Michigan. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil. In some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So our story begins a little over 50 years ago. In the summer of 1968, the six members of the Robison family were beginning their four-hour drive from their home in Lathrop Village to their summer cabin located within the Blisswood Resort community in Goodhart, Michigan. In the car was Richard Robison, 42 years old, and his wife Shirley, who was 40. They had their four children with them, Richie Jr., who was 19, Gary, 16, Richie, 12, and their youngest and only girl, Susan, who was 8 years old. The cabin that they were headed to was really nothing spectacular. The simple lakeside log cabin lie between the tall pines and the dense forest of Lake Michigan. It may not be much, but it meant the world to the Robison family. Richard Robison ran his own business, a Detroit area ad agency, which had become, through much hard work and expense to the man's family, very successful. The fact that Robison could now not only afford a cabin, but could afford to take off work for two months was a sign that the Robisons had made it. This was going to be a big summer for the big family. They were going to spend eight weeks on vacation together. A majority of the time would be spent on the lake in Goodhart, Michigan. However, in the middle of their summer vacation, Richard and Shirley were going to take their children to Disney World in Florida for three weeks. So it's actually really nice. I mean, could you imagine, like, our parents taking us on vacation for eight weeks? I would be, I mean, I can't, but if we did, I would have been so happy. I don't even know what to do with myself. Yeah, I can't imagine my parents doing that. I went on one vacation with my parents. We went to Cancun, Mexico, which is nice. My dad said, you can get a pool or we can go to Mexico. And me and my sister, who's six years younger than me, I was 16, so she was 10. We didn't have the like the foresight to think, okay, pools last longer than Mexico. So we're like, let's go to Mexico. And we went. But then on the plane ride... Right before we could turn off our cell phones, my like amazing flip phone that I had, I found out that my boyfriend was cheating on me, broke up with me, and I had to turn off my phone. 16-year-old girl, devastated. My father still doesn't forgive me for ruining our vacation. <laughs> <laughs> he was always like, look at your sister. She's having so much fun. Isn't that great? And I'm like, Dad, she's 10. She knows nothing about heartbreak <laughs> or a rough life. <laughs> it was so sad. Like, I got broken up with no, whatever, worst vacation ever. Well, I'm sorry, Kay, but I'll yeah. tell you what, you beat me at least. I don't I don't think I've ever gone on a family vacation. Yeah, really, actually, our first vacation is, is going to be our honeymoon. Yeah. I've never been yeah. on one in 27 years. And we haven't been on one together, nope. so yeah. It's pretty interesting. So, what was funny was during the research of this case, obviously, where they're staying in Goodhart, Michigan, that's on Lake Michigan. So I was looking up pictures of, like, Great Lake vacation spots. They're actually so beautiful, the Great Lakes. And at the time, there's a super competitive world of which lake is better. I was going to say more superior, but, like, that's one of the lakes. So (laughs) that would have been (laughs) ridiculous. But 
it for the longest time like lake superior has been considered like the clearest of the lakes but there's something going down right now where there's a lot of mussels in lake michigan and it's making the lakes really clear like really yeah so way to go lake michigan like you're pulling through as the superior of the great lakes i would just if i mean i know nothing about that i didn't even know there was like this weird underworld of which lake was great lake competitions yeah Yeah. (laughs) but i mean i think they're all the same to be honest well i'm sure that we're gonna have a lot of people tell us that they're not the same well if you're in that area let me know let us know which one is superior well, the Goodhearts love their little vacation spot at Lake Michigan, and they've actually had it for a few years. And the fact that they're going to go to Disney World, too, is big stuff happening for the family. And I think it's an appropriate time to go to Disney because their youngest is eight. So I feel like that's when you can appreciate Disney versus like that's why they probably didn't go before because the youngest order was too young to like really... I think appreciate no matter, anything. I think no matter what, you could be like 25 and Disney's still cool. So. No, but I'm saying like young wise. Yeah, true. Like she doesn't know what's going on. So You're like right. at eight, she's like, oh my God, this place is so cool. I don't know. I've never been to Disney. I have like, oh my God, it sounds like a horrible childhood. I promise it was better than I'm making it sound. <laughs> <laughs> we never went on vacation. We never went to Disney. Never went to Disney. So as the Robisons drove down their desolate road that led them to their cabin, they were on the shore of Lake Michigan without a neighbor in sight. Everything was seemingly going perfect for them. As the family settled in, Shirley went to get food and supplies that they would need for the next couple of weeks before they headed down to Disney. While Shirley was at the store and the rest of the family unpacked, Those in town ran into them or stopped by to say hello. The Robisons told most of the people in Goodhart that day and in days to follow that they were planning a trip to Florida for three weeks. By all accounts, the family was absolutely loved. Everyone was just so happy that they were in town. And for about a few weeks, the six members of the family were having a wonderful time on the lake. But this was all going to come to an abrupt halt on June 25th, 1968. We will never truly know what took place on that fateful day in late June, but based on crime scene evidence, the following information has been pieced together. The attack on the family began when five gunshots from a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle shattered the glass of the side window in the cabin. It was the intention of the shooter to murder the entire family. When the shots from the 22 were unsuccessful, they snuck in an unlocked side door the one that was next to the lake, and took out a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol to finish the job. However, that was not the only fate that the family met that day. It's unclear how the events unfolded, but some of the members of the family were also beaten with a claw hammer. Nobody came running when they heard shots or screams, because the closest house did hear shots that day, but they thought that it was someone just shooting birds on the lake. And it was so distant. They didn't hear screams accompanied with it. So they didn't think that there was anything bad that was really taking place that day. And this is really because of just the extreme remoteness of the cabin. So although they were in like kind of a lake community, like the Blisswood community, none of the cabins were close to each other. So nobody really heard what was going on that day. Also, because of the time, no one would even realize the Robisons were missing. If you think about it, nobody had cell phones, you couldn't just check up on people. So when the people in the small coastal town stopped seeing the family shopping or playing on the lake, they just assumed that they had left for their Florida vacation already. And being that it was 1968, you know, you got to kind of talk about the social etiquette of the time and it being an upper class neighborhood. It was a lot of rich families who owned the cabins. They didn't want to intrude upon one another. So they just never really physically went and checked on the Robisons. I could see that, you know, that's, they mind their own business. They, they're neighborly, but they definitely stick to themselves. Yeah. (laughs) On July 22nd, the nearest neighbor to the Robisons, an elderly woman, gathered her friends for her Monday bridge club meeting. The guests commented on how nice it was to finally have some windy weather. That summer, the summer of 68 in Michigan, had been hot with an average temperature of 86 degrees. To make matters worse, there wasn't a lot of rain And there was no wind bringing in cool temperatures from the lake or from Canada. But finally, a wind had come that day, which is 
A little bit unfortunate for this bridge club. But the breeze didn't bring cooler airs to the club. It brought a rancid smell. The women had never smelled anything worse. And the elderly woman who owned the cabin phoned the caretaker of the Blisswood Resort cabins, a man named Monty Bliss. They asked him to go check on the Robisons. The woman on the phone is going to say either they're cooking something terrible or something really bad has happened to them. When Monty Bliss made his way to the remote cabin, he walked into the crime scene of what would become Northern Michigan's most notorious mass murder. Bliss immediately called the Emmett County Sheriff, who in turn called the Michigan State Police Lab. He told those who were about to head to the scene that the place was a disaster. Bullet holes riddled the cabin, furniture was overturned, there was clearly a struggle, but nothing was missing, so it wasn't a robbery attempt. They were also told to be prepared for the bodies because those six bodies had been left untouched in the Michigan summer heat for just under a month's time. So it was bad. The bodies were bloated. There was um, a significant amount of bugs in the bodies. It was just really unfortunate. Before the state police lab could collect evidence, we are going to mention a reoccurring theme that we often discuss on True Crime Couple, um, the mismanagement of crime scenes. And of course, you know, we always say they're products of the time. They don't really know about all the evidence that we know about now, but it is gross mismanagement. So about 15 to 20 people walked through the cabin before any evidence could be collected. Yeah, that's that's always that always seems to be the theme, like all the time. And I don't know why that is. Yeah, it's just, it's nobody's thinking long-term here. Like, can we just get, like, some little, um, the little feed covers or something? You know, like, can we just not contaminate a crime scene? If you guys don't know, John's really sick right now, and I'm forcing him to record. Yes, I, well... I'm really sorry. I'm okay. I, I, well, my voice is terrible, so I apologize, guys. But yes, I would just love for there to be little booties on people's shoes when they're walking in these apartments, I mean, in these places. Yeah, I think we usually see this when it comes to small towns, because I think, although this is a horrible thing to happen, but people are naturally curious, like I am, like looking out the window every two seconds. But when something happens, people want to be involved in it, and I think that's what it is. People just wanting to be involved in it, and it's it's not their intention to mismanage the crime scene, but it just always ends up happening, especially in like these small town kind of things. I would never do it, because I would be like, oh my god, what if some, for some crazy reason... They thought that it was me, and I just happened right. to walk in there like you for like a second. You just left all of your evidence yeah, all over I don't the know. Place. I'm just saying. Could you imagine? Like, <laughs> oh, your footprint matches. Oh, you must have been the guy. Yeah. And then you're like, oh shit. Well, I just went in there to fuck around, and now I'm a suspect. Yeah. We, so I would never walk in there. Hell no. No, we don't have the money for a good defense lawyer. No, so. and I don't like. I don't want. I don't like jail. Stay away from true crime. Yes. I mean, stay away from like crime situations. Yes. Stay. Uh, Towards true crime situations, because that's what we actually yes. are doing right now. I will view from afar. There you go. <laughs> so this whole mismanaged crime scene could be the result of just a horrible coincidence. The Emmett County Sheriff, Richard Zink, who by all accounts was one of the best sheriffs the county had ever had, was a really hardworking man. And he hadn't taken a vacation in eight years until that week. Hmm, interesting. It seems to be the trend. Everyone's jealous of everyone's vacation time. I know, so then he's taking yeah. his. Well, he probably know. You know what though? That's a you know a good move by the sheriff because you're a hardworking sheriff, then all these people are coming up, they're on vacation, they're causing all these problems. You need a break, Zink. So don't feel bad. I agree. He probably deserves it. I agree. But he's going to leave his under sheriff the job of managing the most important crime scene the town is hopefully ever going to have because hopefully nothing bad ever happens again there like this. So it's just kind of a, the worst timing possible. It's true. And especially because this is coming becoming national news, the whole country is going to hear about this town. And it sounds like they just don't know how to manage their stuff. Well, I mean, I guess it's like, you know, next man up kind of thing, you know, like somebody else has to step up to the plate, you know, whether or not... And you know, it was the sheriff. under-sheriff. Yes. So even if the sheriff is so amazing and he's on vacation, well, somebody got to step up, man, you know? Right. So once the crime scene techs took pictures and collected evidence, the bodies were taken in for their autopsies. And this is something that was a daunting task, as the Robisons were in a hot cabin for a month. In fact, the initial autopsies had to be done at the Emmett County Fairgrounds because the smell and the advanced state of decomposition made it impractical to bring the bodies to the morgue. Ew. 
you th- at that point you know it's really bad. Well, it's just unfortunate because we and investigators don't know the actual events of what could like they can't piece together as well as they could have if the bodies weren't in their advanced state of decomposition. So you can only do so much right. what, no, with I get what, what they're saying. working with. Yeah. And that is gonna help the person who committed these crimes, which is unfortunate because you want someone to be held responsible for killing a family of six. Brutally. Yeah. So a few years later, after their first autopsy, a second autopsy is going to be done when they open the investigation later on in 1973. So the bodies are exhumed for that, but we'll get into that later. So just know that there's two autopsies done on all of the bodies. Pictures are taken, evidence is collected, and based on all of the pictures, all of the evidence, the people who look through the crime scene, and the two autopsies, this is what we know happened to each member of the Robison family. So first we're going to talk about Shirley, the mother. Shirley was found lying on her stomach on the floor in the southeast section of the living room. A plaid blanket was covering her body except for the area below her knees. She was shot once in the head by a 25 caliber slug that was found in the first autopsy. So they always say like a blanket on the body shows signs of remorse. It also seems that Shirley did not suffer a lot. It was just one shot to her head, which is fortunate for Shirley. Next is uh, Richard, the father. He was found lying on the floor in the hallway over the hot air register. He was shot once in the head by a 25 caliber slug, which was found in the first autopsy. He also had skull fractures and evidence of blunt force trauma. During the second autopsy, a 22 caliber slug was found. Investigators believe he initially was shot in the chest with a 22 caliber, a 22 caliber rifle, and then in the head with a pistol. Um, what the belief is of what happened to Richard was that that initial for far away shot from the rifle did initially hit Richard, meaning that he was the intended target. Then when the person who committed these crimes came in, snuck into the house with the side door, hit him in the head with the object they determined was a claw hammer, and then shot him. So he did sustain a lot of injuries. Which points to him being the main target. Yeah. Three murder weapons is crazy for for one person. So we'll talk about that later. Next is Richard. Now this is the 19-year-old son, a student at Eastern Michigan University. He was found in the northwest bedroom of the structure, partially in the hallway and partially in the bedroom. His legs were extended out into the hallway. The couple's eldest son had multiple gunshot wounds to the head, linked to the 25 caliber slugs. So it seems that he wasn't hit by the initial 22 rifle, but later by the 25 caliber pistol. Next is Gary, who was 16. The student at Southfield Lathrop High School was found lying on his back along the east wall of the northwest bedroom. The teen had two gunshot wounds to the head, both linked to the 25 caliber slugs. The second autopsy also found a 22 caliber slug as evidence that he was shot in the back through the window initially, and that it seems like he didn't die from that and that he was shot with the pistol later on. Randall, who was 12 years old, was found lying on top of his father. There was a lavender-colored rug that covered him from his shoulders to the top of his legs. The youngest son's cause of death is listed as a gunshot wound to the head, but no bullet was recovered during the autopsy. Finally, there's Susan, who is the youngest member of the Robison family at eight years old. The couple's youngest child was found lying on her back in the hallway just south of her father. A 25 caliber slug was recovered from her clothing as the child was shot in the face. She also had a skull fracture, possibly from a claw hammer that was found at the scene, but later was determined to be the weapon that the father and the youngest child's little girl had. Which is kind of weird to me because it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be like a continuous pattern within the family. He seems to show remorse to some people and then not to others, which is kind of bizarre because initially you think, okay, he feels guilty that he killed Shirley, so he covers her. So maybe he had a problem killing women. 
But then look what he did to the youngest child, the girl. Hit her with a claw hammer and shot her in the face. Even the little boy was shot in the back of the head, whom he showed remorse for and covered him. It's kind of all over the place. I mean, yeah, maybe it would, like if you think about it, whoever whoever this is, he or she must have had like an internal struggle as in their mind, I mean, while they were doing this. Yeah, like I know what you mean. Like maybe there was a lot of rage and then they felt bad about it. And then a lot of rage and then they felt bad about it. Yeah, it's like, you know, highs and lows, like, you know, while this is going on. So I don't know. That's what it seems like to me because you wouldn't. You're there for, let's say, the the father, right. and then you're doing all these weird things by covering them up, or yeah. just it doesn't make sense. So there there must have been an internal struggle in their mind as they're committing these acts because it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, the whole thing kind of doesn't make sense, and maybe, like you said, the intention is to kill the father, which I really think it was because he's the one who sustained the most damage. And they always say the person who is the most injured during an attack is the intended target. But I just think it's strange that the daughter also got hit. I just feel bad. Or maybe she was trying to stop the attack on her father and ended up getting hit. But see, that's the problem. We don't know what happened. So it could have happened in, in many ways. So investigators later determined that someone had shot through the cottage window with a rifle, hitting Richard Robison and one of the boys. The others were chased down and shot one by one. As you can see, the two... Boys were both shot in the bedroom. Maybe they were seeking um, some type of shelter in the bedroom there. The killer closed the curtains, locked the door, and turned up the heat in the cabin. You know, to just further speed up that decomposition process. In the middle of the summer, the heat's also going. It's going to get kind of, it's going to get really hot in that cabin. They also tried to cover bullet holes in the windows with a piece of cardboard. Which is interesting. Yeah, I don't know why you would do that. Well, I would say maybe just to kind of keep the heat in. I don't know. But because a month had passed between the murders and their July discovery, police started by talking to people about what they had seen and heard near the family's cottage at the end of June. They interviewed a local man and teen who had handled some tree trimming for the Robisons on June 25th, 1968. That's the day of the murder. They were likely the last locals to see the family alive. Officers tried to talk to other neighbors who remembered hearing raised voices and rapid gunshots coming from the property around the time. But like I said before, they just assumed that it was someone shooting birds at the, on the beach. After talking to all of those who lived near the Robison cabin, investigators realized that there was no one in the lake community that would want to harm the family. The next realistic step was to look into the family's lives in southern Michigan. Police questioned Richard's secretary of the impresario a cultural magazine that he was running. They asked if maybe there was a business deal gone bad or anyone the man was possibly in competition with. The secretary basically told police, I don't know about any of that, but the morning of June 25th, Richard Robison had spoken to his banker. Apparently, Richard's banker noticed that there was an unusual amount of money missing from the entrepreneur's business account. So he decided to give his client a phone call. Apparently, they were waiting for a $200,000 check to clear. That's what was happening. After learning about this, Richard is going to call his office. She said that he was furious, the most angry she had ever heard the mild-mannered man. He demanded to speak to the man who was left in charge of the business's finances, Joseph Scolero. The secretary said that she could not hear the whole conversation, but she did know that there was a lot of shouting going on. And Scalero abruptly hung up the phone and left the office around 10.30 a.m. that day. So police immediately look into the past of this advertising assistant. And they were surprised to find that Joseph Scalero III of Birmingham, Michigan, was actually a U.S. Army veteran who specialized in sharpshooting. So now investigators are suspicious of the embezzling guy with lots of gun experience. I mean, it kind of makes sense a little bit. Makes sense a lot of it. <clears throat> well, it's always the it's always the sharpshooter. <laughs> it's no, like, I feel bad. Right? These poor guys. It's like it's like they're getting labeled, and it's so weird. It's like throughout the course of history, it's always the sharpshooter. Well, it seemed that Scalero was the perfect suspect for this, right? Here's a guy embezzling money from the family, so he does have motive. He also has the opportunity because he left the office. 
he has the ability to do it. So it's kind of the perfect suspect has fallen into the laps of investigators. The secretary continues to tell them that Scalero never came back to the office on the 25th and never explained where he went. Investigators next went to ask the man some questions. When they went to talk to him, he stated that he and his boss didn't have a fight at all. He only called him to ask whether or not the check that they were waiting for had arrived at the Southfield office. He then left the office after the phone call, but he had a lot to do that day. And police asked him just what he did that day because he hadn't returned home till 1130 at night. That's a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, you go from leaving the office at, you know, 1030 and you're not returning home till 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. What the hell are you doing, man? It's a long time. Yeah. Well, he said that he, after he left the office, he went to the plumbers convention at Cobo Hall and there he met Robert Laidlaw of Delta Faucet Company, which is, that's a pretty funny name for a faucet company, like Delta Force Company, like Delta Faucet Company. Ah, uh, funny, it's actually, I don't know, I just thought it was really good. <laughs> well, it's actually interesting because Delta's like a big brand of uh, plumbing supplies and faucets. Well, there you go. So, that's what it is. Yeah. That's them, Robert Laidlaw. And it's there that he walked with him to a nearby hotel. So he obviously knows Robert Laidlaw. They walk from the convention to a hotel, but then Scalero later returns to the convention around 5 p.m. This is what he says. So 5 p.m. leaves the convention. He goes back to the office. And when he arrives back at the office, he said he had to unplug down sprouts, sports, spouts, something about like rain. Do I not know what I'm, I know <laughs> that I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I don't but know. But something had become clogged because of heavy rain, so we had to unplug the downspouts. Maybe the, um, oh my God, I see, I can't even think about it. Um, what do you call that? We are definitely not homeowners. Well, so thank God, not yet. Really or we, maybe our house would be underwater right now. Apparently, because yeah. we wouldn't unplug the downspouts. Oh, maybe it had to do with the gutters, maybe. I feel like I don't want to make it sound worse, so let's stop guessing. Good idea. Because we have no idea what Good we're idea. talking about. <laughs> so while he is fixing this rain issue they're having at the office, he remembers that Richard Robinson said that his house often floods as well. So he decides, let me go to the Robinson house. Now he knows the family's on vacation, but he knows where they keep a spare key. So he went into the house and he said the house did have considerable flooding. So he spent the next three hours mopping out their basement. Which is, if it really did happen, nice thing to do. If True. it didn't happen, that's a rude alibi. <laughs> right? I mean, I think it is oddly convenient, though, that, you know, oh, I want to do a favor for you, dude, on the, <laughs> that you're getting murdered as an alibi. Yeah. So, I don't know. So, the police followed up on this alibi, and the following was found out. Robert Laidlaw was interviewed. He recalled meeting Scalaro at the hotel in the afternoon and walking with him to Cobo Hall. He stated that it was not raining, but it was a sunny, bright day. So then they looked into the plumber's convention, which was taking place at Cobo Hall on June 23rd, 24th, and 25th. The weather records for Detroit showed that on June 23rd and 24th, they were dry, partly sunny days. But on June 25th, there was 2.17 inches of rain, 0% chance of sunshine. That's a rough day. It was a rough day. So Robert Blair, a distributor of Delta Plumbing Products, had a booth at the convention. He stated to investigators that he was confident that he didn't see Scalero at the convention on June 25th, but he did see him on June 24th. He was attending his booth when he saw Scalero making rounds around the convention. On June 25th, Blair indicated that he and others dismantled their booths in an early afternoon because the rain was heavy and no one was around. John Seabrook, a Delta sales representative, told investigators that he saw Scalero at the convention on either June 23rd or 24th. He said he definitely did not see him on the 25th. Investigators also asked Scalero's wife what time he got home, and she admitted that he came home at 11.30 p.m., which was odd because he never before missed dinner without calling home first. So I think this is really interesting. And I think that I don't know how to explain it. I don't want to go forward too much, but just keep in mind that it seems like the alibi from 
sclero that's coming out is saying is like mixing days up we're like yes he did go to the convention on the 23rd or 24th but it was raining on the 25th he's taking the best of he's creating an alibi based on partial truths of of two different days that's what it sounds like to me so he was there let's just say that he was there on the 24th that is true probably but he wasn't there, let's say, right. at the convention on the 25th. But it was raining on the 25th. He's taking bits and pieces to make a true story. Which, in my in my mind, doesn't make any sense. Because any detective, any investigator at all, can just go look these things up and, you know, disprove right. this. So does he think the investigators are stupid? Or is this just him saying, okay, well, I know it was till the 25th too. So let me just say I was there that day. Maybe people will get confused. But I think investigators took it as, like, he was setting up an alibi, which I don't think is true. Because I think if Scalera were to have committed these murders, he did so on an impulse. Like, he was just angry and he did it. So I don't think he would have planned it enough to say, okay, let me go to the convention on the 24th to kind of confuse people. Like, I don't think it was a premeditated thing. I think if Scalero did it at all, that it was a spur-of-the-moment passion oh my god i got caught embezzling i have to do something about it kind of thing do you know what i'm saying yeah no i, I don't think it was yeah. premeditated at all okay but detectives were honest with sclero regarding their suspicions about him and they asked him to take a lie detector test and he did he took three tests and he failed every single one of them after this police zero in on the army veteran at the crime scene they found a bloody footprint so a warrant was obtained to search the home of Scalero for anything that they could find, but they were mainly looking for a boot to match the print that was left at the crime scene. Which is kind of strange to me because you know 15 to 20 people walked around your crime scene. It really could be anybody's footprint at this point. So that is going to be really hard to prove in court, even if you find the boot, which right. they do. Ooh. Well, still, everybody should be wearing those little booties. Right. However, the boot that they found at Scalaro's home is brand new and had never been worn before. So they found the boot, but nobody wore it. But upon searching the house, they found a very strange fact about this man. He purchased two of everything. He had two of the same suits, two of the same shirts, all two of the same shoes, except for the boot. And he had, of all of his guns, he had two of each, except... For an AR-7 and a 25 caliber Beretta semi-automatic pistol. Which those two weapons, based on the ballistics that they did for the shell casings at the scene, were the two weapons that were used in the committing of the crime. Uh-oh. Yeah. In the house, they find an AR-7 and, like I said, a Jetfire automatic Beretta pistol. But he only has one of each. Another thing that was found at the house was a rare type of ammunition that was used in the 25 caliber pistol. And this was fine. These were found at the crime scene and at his home. So it's looking pretty bad for Scalaro at this point. Police also didn't buy that he only had one AK-7. But they still tested the ballistics from the crime scene to the weapon at Scalaro's home. And they were not a match. But they refused to stop there. They visited a private gun range owned by Scalaro's father and brother-in-law. They admit that Scalaro does shoot there. And he's the only one there that has ever used an AK-7. So investigators retrieve shell casings from the shooting range using metal detectors. When they find the casings expelled by an AK-7, they have them tested. And they are an exact match of the crime scene. <clears throat> meaning that the AK-7 that he got rid of is the one that shot the bullets at the crime scene. Right, and it seems like he has two of everything. Yeah. So it's odd when there's one, one. of each. <laughs> Correct. At this point, investigators were determined to bring charges of first-degree murder against the man. So they wrote a 200-page report asking the prosecutor's office to bring charges against Joseph Scalaro. The Emmett County Prosecutor's Office, however, refused to bring charges against Scalaro, citing that there was not enough physical evidence to charge the man. Investigators were devastated and infuriated. From what I can gain, the two reasons why charges were never brought against him, first, was financial. Um, it seemed that the prosecutor's office was strapped for cash during this time. And secondly, they were pretty sure that a defense attorney could find fault in this case. 
Now, the fault that they could find in the case is there was tunnel vision on the part of investigators. They kind of narrowed in on Scalero and they only stuck to him. But that kind of makes sense. I mean, everything about Scalero shouts, I'm the person who did it. And also, there's one other thing. There was somebody else who quite possibly could be a potential suspect. And that's the man who found the bodies of the family, Monty Bliss. Now, this is very strange. Two days prior to the murder of the Robisons, Bliss was brought in for questioning regarding the death of his son. Now, his son had died two days before the Robisons did in a motorcycle accident. Police had reason to believe that quite possibly Bliss had strung out line in the road which caused his son to die in a motorcycle crash. In discussions with police, he was very cold. And apparently this is something that Richard Robison had also had a discussion with the man about. And it was clear that Bliss was not happy about whatever Robison was saying to him, according to witnesses. The theory here was maybe that Robison knew something about the death of Bliss's son. Also, when Bliss was brought in for questioning about the murder of the Robison family, he asked investigators, quote, how much time would I get for all of this? In the end, in his police file, Monty Bliss is determined to be mentally unstable. But investigators don't believe he was responsible for the crime and he had passed a polygraph test. So this is either a really good suspect because his motivation could be maybe that he was really angry at something Robison said or he, Robison maybe knows something about the death. I don't know. It's just, that's a kind of humongous coincidence. I think so. I also think that like some people out there are just very... Very odd when they're questioned. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're that they're guilty of something. I mean, that is a very odd question to ask. How much time would I receive for murder? Well, I think they do touch upon that by saying he's mentally unstable. Right, and I think that it's odd. I mean, like that's like something from a movie. Oh, I gotta kill these people now because it's the tie up loose ends because I might have yeah. been involved in my son's murder. It's just yeah, it's kind of. I feel of like that's too much of a stretch. I think yeah. that it has more to do with the military sharpshooter than the grieving sort of weird father. Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) I don't know. With prosecutors not wanting to bring charges against Joseph Scalaro, investigators were at a standstill. They felt that they literally had the guy who had committed the murders, but nothing could be done about it. This crime haunted northern Michigan. It remained national news and was a black spot on Michigan law enforcement for not being able to bring the murderer of this beloved family to justice. And this is what prompted Oakland County prosecutors to tackle this case from a different perspective. Emmett County prosecutors won't bring charges against them, but possibly Oakland County prosecutors can because that's where the embezzlement took place in Oakland County. So now we have Oakland County prosecutors focusing on the embezzlement activities of Scalaro, and this is what their investigations found. In the absence of Richard Robison, Scalaro gave himself a disproportionate and financially unjustified raise in his pay. His salary increased from $850 to $4,000 per month, and he took expense checks in that period that were significantly larger than had been the case. So he was embezzling a lot of money. The accounting firm that managed the Robison's business accounts advised that such additional costs were unwarranted by the firm's balance sheets and that Richard Robison habitually reviewed potential employee raises with these accountants before ever granting them. But he didn't do so in this instance. So basically red flags are being raised because Robison was such a conscientious and careful businessman and it seems like he ran everything by his financial consultant and all of this was happening without being run by the guy so that's why the guy's like um something's wrong here the accountants also advised that the raises of 10 to 25 percent were granted to other employees at this time period without discussion between the accountants and robison to determine the viability the employees also were told that the raise was given to them by Scalero and not Robison. So what I think was going on here was that the people were understanding what Scalero was doing and he was giving them raises to kind of like 
keep them quiet or potentially take over the business from Robison, which is just such a ballsy, crazy thing to do. So on the morning of the homicides, Richard Robison was on the phone with his banker asking about a $200,000 deposit being made into the company account. But the banker advised him that it hadn't been made into the account. And his banker also talked to him about the the raises that were going on and, and how much higher the paycheck checks were. So this is where everything was kind of being brought to Robison's attention. And then, of course, that's when Robison's secretary recalls very angry and loud phone conversation that took place between him and Scalaro. But when investigators are going to ask Scalaro about this $200,000 deposit, he said that it was on its way and that Robison wasn't angry with him about anything. He even, he denies the fact altogether that Robison brought anything up to him about this. So it's like he was trying to just smooth his way out of it. But he's forgetting that you have a whole bunch of people who know you did this, including the employees, including the accountants, and including the banker. So it's just like, it's a really messy trail that Scalero left here. And another noteworthy thing that they found in 1973 when they reopened the case in Oakland County is Margaret Smith. Now, Margaret Smith is a friend of Scalero and Robinson, and she was getting worried because she hadn't really heard from the family. So on July 18th, she's going to ask Scalaro where Robinson had been or if he heard from them at all. And he's going to tell Margaret Smith not to worry that he just talked to them the other day and the family was in Kentucky, which is shady. I find that odd because Scalaro knew where they were. So it's just like, why would you lie about where they were? You're doing that to throw people off the trail that they're dead. Yeah, I think that's weird. I think... I, it would have been more believable if he said, oh, they're on vacation in Michigan or, oh, they might be in Florida. I'm not sure, but a whole, they're in Kentucky. Was that Unless he's trying to say they're on their way to Florida and they're stopping in Kentucky. That's the only reasonable thing I think he could say. Yeah, about. I think you're giving him a little bit too much credit. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, could, you could flip it that way, yeah. It is rough. So... This time, in 1973, the investigation is going quite well, and prosecutors believe that they're going to have six first-degree murder charges aimed right at Scalero in the future. But this, just like the last time, wouldn't be able to happen. In March of 1973, Scalero got word of the investigation. And before anything could continue, Joseph Scalero took his own life, with the same 25 caliber Beretta that was used to kill the Robisons. Scalero left a note. In the note, he admitted that he was a liar, a cheat, and a phony. He left a list of the people that he swindled over his lifetime, and he discussed, and he discussed how ashamed of himself he was. And at the bottom of the note, he wrote, P.S. I had nothing to do with the Robison murders. So some believe that the suicide of Scalaro is the answer to the Robison murders. And some people believe that that leaves us with more questions. I feel like the evidence stacked against Solero. Solaro. Scalaro. Scalaro. I'm sorry. Come on, you're Italian. <laughs> I know. Um, it's kind of damning. I mean, it, there, it's just, there's so much stuff. I mean, what is the likelihood of having two of every gun in your gun case, two of every shoe shirt, pants, and then there's just two guns and a pair of shoes that are missing. I find that a little bizarre. The shell casings. The shell casings. At the private gun range. So you can't even say, like a defense attorney can't even say, oh, that could have been anyone who shot there because of, like, proximity. It's private. Only the family, only your wife's family shoots there. Right. So that's what's very odd to me. And then also, which I... I could be wrong about, but I think it gives a little bit more insight into, like, that maybe he did think about the choice of guns that he was bringing there. Because that Beretta, it's a self-defense weapon. It's supposed to be for concealed, like, all all handguns are concealed carry, but this more so is for, like, you, it's made so you cannot see it. It's easily to be, like, you could put it in your pocket. That's how small it is. Like, you don't even need a holster for this. So it's just, like, easy to put in your clothing somewhere. It's made for self-defense. It's very short and stubby. That's true, but 
the rifle is hard to conceal. Well, the that. rifle. He did have a rifle with him. The rifle, yeah, but there there's a reason for the rifle. Um, I think. Well, from, it's long range. It's long. It's supposed to be a long range. It shoots. It, it's supposed to fire rapidly. And twenty twos, you know, they're actually. I I think I've said this before in other episodes. Twenty twos are actually really dangerous. One because once they penetrate. They kind of just like scramble everything inside. They're actually like they don't like the bullet hole is not big. Most of the time, it stays in the body and it just kind of like ricochets off of bones and yeah. muscles and stuff. So it's actually like a very deadly bullet. Most people don't realize that. It seemed that he definitely knew what he was doing, and he had like a history in it, being an army vet. Yeah, I, but that's the thing. I, that's what I'm really trying to get out here. It seems like the weapon choices were personal. Because you're taking this pistol, it's it's a 25 caliber, both and I and I'm I'm pretty sure both of those rounds when they're fired, there's not a lot of sound. They're sound, but they're they're not like if you were to shoot a nine mil, a 45, a other higher caliber, whether it's assault rifle or pistol, they they emit more noise, more decibels, and those don't. So like you know he like it, to me it feels like he just sprayed the front of the house or the back of the house with the assault rifle, knew that he injured somebody in there without a doubt, and then walked in there and pretty much executed them with a small stub nose kind of pistol. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So I don't know. I feel like they were they were picked very strategically. Yes, I would say that yeah that would make sense because you would have to if you're a single person going to this crime you would have to be strategic because there's six people and there's not just six people but there's three men because his sons are older and they were very strong very big guys so for one person to take out six people you would need weapons that worked because they could easily have overpowered one person. I want to relate it to when when a hunter goes hunting, they bring certain equipment based on what they're hunting, right? So in this case, he's hunting people, okay? So he was able to injure them, you know, slightly wound them with a twenty-two. Right, so now when he goes in, in it's injured. easier because they're injured. And they're not going to fight back Especially when they're injured Especially like the two um, most athletic, the the one son and the father. Right. Those were the ones who were his biggest threats. Right. Wow, so that's, that's what I'm so saying. Crazy. You know what I mean? So that's why I think that it, it most likely, in my opinion, is him because you would need to know what to bring with you to cause the most havoc and yet not right. alert everyone. This doesn't seem like something Monty Bliss would have done. I don't think so. In his ups- being upset about his son, which is a crazy coincidence that took place, which halted the investigation, which is crazy if you think about it. Yeah, and I also don't want to forget about the claw hammer. And I could just, we could say the claw hammer could have been in the house, in the cabin. I mean, that doesn't necessarily have to be Yes, his. they were doing, well, think, they were doing repairs on the cabin because they hadn't been there in a long time. Another thing about Scalaro, which is really interesting, is the cabin is extremely remote. So the, he knew how to get there because he had visited the cabin before with them. The prior summer, he went up with the family. So, we know someone can get to the cabin, they know it's remote, they know the layout, I just, it's just so obviously Scalero, but, like, bureaucracy stopped him from being prosecuted in in 1968, and then in 1973, when he knew the investigation was going to go forward, he committed suicide, and I know in the note he says, I I'm not responsible for the Robison murder, but I think symbolically he showed that he was by using the same gun. Obviously, it's not the same gun, but it's the same model, second one. And by explaining that here's the list of people that I've swindled. So I think that he felt so much pressure that when he was basically caught by Richard Robison, he knew my whole world is going to come crashing down. My past is going to come out and all the other people I hurt and I'm not going to get out of jail. So I think it was him backed into a corner, and then he used the skills that he knew how to use, which is his sharpshooting and army trained skills. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, like you said, when someone said, you know, yes, it said that he did it. I mean, that he didn't do it. I apologize. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's just a way of 
maybe helping with his family kind of, you know, not be burdened with the fact that a family member killed six, My one of my family members killed six people, an entire family. Right, exactly. Kind of saved them from what he did. Right. Like so, he's probably saying to himself, "I killed myself. I'm, I know, I'm. Well, I guess I'm free of this. But I'm not going to jail. But I want to free my family by saying that I didn't do it. Yeah, I, I think he did it. In yeah. my opinion, I think he. Yeah, he's I guilty. think <laughs> I think Scalaro is our number one person here. But that's a good point you bring up. Not leaving his family in a cloud of suspicion for the rest of their lives. Right. Yeah. And we don't know what other financial implications maybe that could have. Sure. Also went into whether it's life insurance, whether it's right um, anything that he owned, li- like liquidation wise. We have no idea, right. so there could be more to it than even we know. Right, there was a financial and legal reason for that suicide note. That's true because we don't have the full suicide note. I, that's a that's an interesting one. Now it's so funny because the Good Heart murders fall into this unsolved category. I think they are one hundred percent solved. I mean, I can't, unless some crazy, ridiculous other piece of evidence comes out, I just don't see it ever being anyone except for Scalaro. But it is still designated as unsolved crime. But in a way, I'll wrap up by saying, in a way, I'm glad that it's an unsolved case still. Because I would rather the police try to keep having it open and try to find something to close it 100 percent certain than to just be like oh well that was the guy he fucking he did it and he killed himself and now it's wrapped up well like in the 50 year like anniversary of this crime that happened in 2018 um emmett county prosecutors basically admitted that it was the fault of the prosecutor's office not prosecuting there was sufficient enough evidence to try the case so Um, Fault has been admitted and apologized for, which is good because these six members of the Robinson family died for greed. Yeah. So I guess, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, I'm, it's just how you look at it. It is. You know, if you're on the other side, if you're on the side of it solved based on all the, you know, evidence in front of you. It's clear. And then some people want, some people always think it's unsolved. People love a good conspiracy theory, and I think they like to wrap that around the good heart murders where people believe that it was Monty Bliss who was trying to conceal the fact that he murdered his son. So he murdered the six members of the family. But that will always leave it up for debate amongst armchair sleuths like us. So we do like that it is considered unsolved because it does bring it to the attention of the nation. Every once in a while, just to remember that these poor, innocent people were murdered for no reason. So mm-hmm. it is nice to keep their memory alive. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys, that is episode 44, and we really hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you really like this podcast, we would appreciate if you could spread the word because nothing works better for us than you telling people about the podcast. So, Tell someone to listen to True Crime Couple. And that would really help us out a lot. Uh, if you want to, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram. And if you want to send us an email, that's truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And we look forward to seeing you guys again in two weeks. Yeah, can't wait to see you guys. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs>